Amen. If you brought a Bible this evening, let me invite you to go ahead and open back up to the book of 1 Peter. We kicked off this book last week and we return now this evening. I just want to say once again what I, what I shared a little bit of last week, um, but it bears repeating that, I don't know about you, but I treasure being together as the church and as the family of God in person, face to face, more so than ever before. I am so incredibly thankful for each and every one of you. Um, you are very much a blessing to me personally and to my family. Um, if you are new to our church, even if you are here uh, for the very first time, um, we are better as a church family with you here, and so we want you to continue to be here and uh, to grow with us. Um, I am thankful, and I dare say I'm proud of all of you, how you have endured the challenges or even the trials of this most recent season that we've gone through. Um, I know that many churches are facing many challenges. We have, we have faced some, um, certainly not things that are awful, but I have appreciated your fervency in prayer and your consistency in gathering, even when we couldn't gather, you know, in the, in the typical sense. Um, and my prayer through all of this really has been and will continue to be, it, maybe in a fresh way because of 1 Peter, that God would use these trials that we face, whatever they are, to manifest the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is in our lives, that our daily lives would be changed more and more, not in spite of trials, but specifically because of them, and that we could trust Him through those trials. You know, uh, Alana and I, we felt the call to plant this church almost six years ago. And I would have told you then that I believed in that moment, as I've shared before, that I believed that I and that we were ready, you know, at that moment. I was ready to go right away. Um, but in God's goodness and in His providence, instead, He gave us trials. He gave us an opportunity to be patient. And He gave us the opportunity to be, as the Scripture tends to use the language, to be pruned. He gave us a season to be trained and to be grown and to be sanctified, to use another Bible word, and to use a word from this evening's scripture, he gave us a chance to be refined. And that is what God does so often through circumstances that we may or may not like as God refines us to make us more holy. Um, and I believe through that season in our lives, God brought greater grace into our lives, which resulted in greater repentance and greater following and trusting after him. And then a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, we gathered together uh, beginning as a little baby church, and now we're sort of a wobbly toddler church continuing to grow, but we recognize from the beginning that God has given us as a church a mission. It comes straight from Matthew 28. There are many adaptions of Matthew 28. We express it by saying our mission, our purpose as a church is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And from the very beginning, we've said that the vision that God has given us as a church comes directly out of Revelation 21, and that is to see our city, this city, made new by the gospel, and that we desire to see that spread throughout the world, through every church that God would use to, to do that same thing. We began to unpack the reality last week that we are travelers in this life. And as a church, even, we are travelers. Very much, this is a new location even for us to meet. We are travelers in every sense. Um, in very practical ways from the beginning, we have left some of the comforts behind. 
to support Ray's money, to be able to gather in a high school cafeteria. There was discomfort, there was challenge there to be able to do that, to gather in a cafeteria each week, and now to be able to gather uh, in the fellowship hall at Covenant, to, um, to gather in our homes as city groups for discipleship and fellowship. There were challenges along the way, but at every point we have gathered around the good news of Jesus with that purpose in mind despite the challenge. It's interesting to me, but I praise God for it, that He chose to launch us as a church just in time to catch all that has been the last three months. He launched us intentionally into this so that we might be refined, so that we might be used to glorify God. Tonight, Peter has a lot to tell us about that, and I believe it relates to our church right now in 2020. So we look to the Scripture this evening. We're going to begin in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1 tonight. I'm going to read all the way to verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Let's take a moment and let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is perfect. We thank you that your word is hope in hopeless times. We thank you that your word is grace and love and truth and justice. And Father, we need all of those things. And so, Father, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive your word this evening. Father, humble us and challenge us. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with your peace. Fill us with your living hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes this evening, three simple points or applications from the Scripture this evening, all based on the reality of experiencing trials. That is, through trials we have three things. Number one, a living hope. Number two, a faith refined by fire. And number three, a promised salvation. Let's look at number one from verses three through five at the very beginning. A living hope, says the Scripture. First things first. Remember, we saw last weekend that God has not called us to be comfort seekers who move in and make the world our permanent home. 
And yet at the same time, He's not called us to be tourists who are simply moving through and care nothing for what is going on around them. Rather, in the first two verses of 1 Peter, He calls Christians exiles. He calls us elect or chosen exiles. See, the people of God whose true home is not here, we are still on this earth for a time. We know not how long. And while we are here, we are part of God's mission, God's great rescue plan for the whole world. And so he begins by telling us that we have a living hope. It is a living hope of salvation. According to the Father's great mercy, it says, He has caused us, the Father has caused us to be born again. You see, the Father's mercy conceived salvation's plan. Sometimes, as people, we tend to think of God the Father as the mean, angry Father, and if it weren't for Jesus the Son who comes in and says, wait, 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 don't judge them, don't give them the justice they deserve, let's show grace this time, let's be nice. But the Scripture here reminds us, do not dissect the Trinity or create differences between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What we're told here specifically is it is the Father's plan of salvation to save us, executed through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will see by the end of this passage this evening. Why does this matter? Well, in a very personal way, I don't know about your home, we have little kids in our home, and so every week tends to be a week filled with, among other things, band-aids. We had a lot of band-aids this week. We had a lot of injuries, a lot of wounds, and so there was a lot of band-aids pulled out. Um, When my kids hurt, they need band-aids. There's some sort of comfort that is there in that Band-Aid. But we don't just hand them the Band-Aid and walk away, right? We comfort them. We embrace them. We hug them. We communicate that they are loved because there is security in our love for them. And when they are feeling a trial, a stub toe, a scratch knee, they need to know our love for them. They need to know also that they don't have to do something to get love from us. That's the reality of our relationship with God the Father. I don't have to do something to earn that love. That love is there for me. Look at how that reality plays out in the Scripture. Look at Titus 3.5. The Father, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is not only a living hope of salvation, it's a living hope of resurrection. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. Holy with no sin, and then He died the death that we should have died, but He died it in our place. It's a living hope. He died for us to be a part of His resurrection. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, Peter thought that it was the end of hope. Do you remember how Peter carried himself through that entire scene? Peter was convinced that this was it, 
Hope had ended when Jesus died on the cross. But then Peter went running to the tomb when he heard that Jesus wasn't there anymore. Hope was reborn in Peter's heart when he saw that the Lord Jesus was alive. Just the same, Jesus told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, he said, if you want to be with me, you must be born again with me, born again into the resurrection. But then Peter tells us in verse 4 and 5, it's a living hope of salvation, of resurrection, and it's an inheritance. Look at verses 4 and 5. I'm sorry. Look at Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus speaking about inheritance, about what we should put our hope in. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. An eternal inheritance in heaven. It says it's imperishable, which means it cannot be destroyed, not by you, not by anybody. It says that it's undefiled, which means there is nothing that can happen that will spoil your inheritance in heaven. It means it's unfading, which is the language of grass that that withers and dies, that your inheritance cannot wither, and to think real practically for us that it cannot become nor will it ever be boring that everything about the inheritance of God is a wondrous gift that will last forever. We have a living hope. Some of you have maybe heard the name Viktor Frankl, who is a Jewish survivor of Auschwitz prison camp during World War II. He wrote a book after the war called Man's Searching for Meaning. And what he described in that book was the way that people in that prison camp either maintained hope or what it looked like when they lost hope. He said in his book that some responded to the despair, the cruelty, the wickedness, and the evil by becoming evil themselves. And when they saw vicious people attack, they themselves became vicious as well. He said some just gave up. Some people in the prison camp, there was a day that came when they refused to get up. And Beatings or threat of death made no difference because they had given up hope. He said some people, though, would hope in life after the destruction, after the prison camp, thinking after the war I'll be able to go back to my family, I'll be able to go back to my business, I'll be able to go back to my home, to my community, but their hopes were dashed when after the war they went back and discovered that they had no family. They had no home. They had no business. Their city was gone. He said there was only one group of people that survived with hope. And the way that this man described it, he says, those who overcame Auschwitz were the ones who had a fixed reference point of hope beyond their immediate world. They had a fixed reference point of hope where they placed all of their affections. Believer, follower of Christ, where is your hope for the future? Is it in earthly things? Is your hope such that if the world is vicious to you, that the solution is you become vicious to them? 
Is your hope in the idea that eventually things will get back to normal? There's no promise of that. Is your hope simply in that there will be a better day for me, that one day my job or one day my business will come through or one day my stimulus check will come through? Is that where your hope is? Is your hope in the next election or the next election after that? Is your hope to get into a good relationship eventually? Or is your hope in someday I'm going to get out of this bad relationship? Is your hope in comfort? Is your hope in summer vacation or entertainment or fun? Or is your hope in whatever it is that you have found to medicate the pain that you experience in trials? Brothers and sisters, none of them will last. Trials and suffering do something. They reveal what our hope is truly in, don't they? But trials also do this. They show us whether the thing that we have hoped in was worth it. What we can do when we gather here, when we worship, when we come before the Lord is we can remember that there is only one singular true hope. He is a living hope and His name is Jesus. Amen. We trust in Him. Tonight we can declare that reality and that promise that it's true in our lives today just like it was true for Peter. Number two, not only do we have a living hope, we have a faith refined by fire. We see this in verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, says the Scripture, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In this, it says, in this you take joy. Our hope is in the reality that Jesus is not dead, but that he is alive. And so therefore, when it says, for a little while, for a little while we will face pain or struggle, or suffering, or persecution, or trial, for a little while, we can endure the fires of trial and grief. The Scripture here says, tested by fire. I grew up reading the NIV, the New International Version, and I love the word there that it uses, refined, that you are tested or refined by the fire. See, our faith, our faith, is purified in the fire. It is also proven in the fire. You find out if your faith is real. You know, when you put something into the fire, when you put gold into the fire, what does it do? It heats up. It removes what should not be there. When you put gold into the fire, it removes the impurities and you get something that is refined, that is more pure. Have you ever felt like God put you in the fire? Been there? Maybe you're there now? What happened? If you were a believer, if you are a believer, how did God change your faith as you were in the fire? I will tell you, it will 
change your faith, and it will purify you. And I can honestly, having been in that place in seasons of my life, I pray more so now than ever before, I pray that my fellow believers would experience trials, would go through lousy things, because in those moments, God shows up in a powerful way. And we realize more clearly than ever before that so many things that we held on to are junk, are waste. And we realize how good and powerful it is to know that God is good, to know that He's there. We realize that everything that we've held on to so tightly, it turns to ash in the fire. But our faith in the Lord remains. Even gold, the Scripture is saying here, will eventually vanish, as will all of the created world. But genuine faith endures forever. I was a history major in college, among other things. I like history stuff. I learned this week that in eight, uh, 1685, the Edict of Nantes was revoked. Now, I'm sure all of you can call up, oh yeah, the Edict of Nantes. The Edict of Nantes was revoked by King Louis XIV, and when he repealed that, it meant that to worship God as a Protestant, which is what we are, became a crime. In 1685 in France, it became a crime to worship God. And if you were caught, and men were caught, worshiping Jesus in secret places, you would be taken and put on a galley ship. You would be chained to a bench and made a slave to the oars of that galley ship until eventually you died. In a museum in France today, there is a replica of those oars that were on those galley ships with the words of a French Christian who was there. And the words on that oar of this believer chained to the oar, he said, my chains are the chains of Christ's love. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. As what trials are suffering should we expect right now today, in 2020? I hear many people asking the question, is persecution around the corner for believers today, here, now? I have two answers. Well, first of all, persecution is everywhere around the world. So many believers are actively attacked and killed for their faith today around the world, and it is by God's grace that we can even ask the question, is it going to happen here? The best answer I can give you is maybe. I don't know. But what I do know, I see in the Scripture. One of my life verses is Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. And Jesus, just listen, Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross daily and follow me. Cross is not an instrument of comfort. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Guys, if you're going to fight against sin in your own life, if you're going to fight against sin in your own life, you will suffer. There will be trials. If you're going to speak truth against the secret sins and the darkness that is in our world, I promise you, you will suffer. 
If you're going to spend time discipling others, investing in other people's lives, giving to the mission of the church of Jesus, if you're going to love people who are hurting, if you're going to teach them about Jesus, if you're going to build real relationships centered around Christ, there will be blessed trials. It will cost you your time. It will cost you your money. It will cost you your schedule, your calendar, your agenda. Jesus says it will cost you your life in some sense if you decide to be motivated by the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of me. It will mean losing your life to gain it, says the scripture, to gain the whole world for Jesus Christ. Uh, Last week for our four seniors here at New City, I gave them a book. It's one of my favorite books. It's John Piper, Don't Waste Your Life. I could read the whole book right now cover to cover. I won't, but I want to give you one sentence from John Piper. He says this, at the intro of the book, he says, it was not always plain to me that pursuing God's glory would be virtually the same as pursuing my joy. Now I see that millions of people waste their lives because they think these paths are two and not one. See what he's saying there? If you want to pursue glory, God's glory and God's plan and God's purposes, you will realize that true joy comes in those things, even through trials. Jesus promises that suffering will be replaced with, what does Peter say? Praise glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Peter returns to the same idea in the final chapter of his book, and he says that we too as believers will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We have a living hope. We have a faith that is refined by fire. And finally, we have a promised salvation. Number three, this is in verses 10 through 12. Look at the scripture with me one more time. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets in the Old Testament promised Jesus. See, every page of the Scripture from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, has one single amazing message, and it is the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. And throughout the Scripture, we get this reality that that Messiah who is to come will suffer first and glory second. We've already seen how we as believers follow Jesus in that, that there will be suffering first and glory to come, but Jesus does it perfectly, suffering first, and glory to come. Do you know that in Matthew chapter 16, remember Peter and Jesus are having a conversation. It's that moment when Peter finally gets it. 
None of the other disciples have gotten it yet, but Peter says, I get it, and he confesses that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, same word, that Jesus is the Messiah. He goes on to say that Jesus is the Son of God. So Peter finally gets who Jesus is. Then Jesus says, okay, now that you understand that, Jesus prophesies, predicts, and says he is going to be betrayed, that he himself is going to suffer, that he himself is going to die. And Peter says, no way. That can't be, God. There's no way. We cannot do it that way. Do you remember what Jesus' response to Peter was? When Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, you can't suffer. What did Peter call him? Satan. Peter says, get behind me, Satan. That that Peter's rejection of suffering first and glory second was met with the words, get behind me, Satan. Peter's learning. Peter continued, though, to resist that idea until the very end, until he saw in the garden Jesus is being betrayed. A soldier comes to grab Jesus to take him away. And what did Peter do? One last try to stop Jesus from suffering. He grabbed a sword. He cuts off the ear of that soldier named Melchus. And Jesus says, stop. Put down your sword. Sufferings first. Glory to come. Do you know that after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus runs into two people who are are walking and they're talking about all that has happened about Jesus' death. And the resurrected Jesus begins to talk with them. What does he tell these two people that he's talking with? The scripture says that he walked them through the entire Old Testament and taught them how the Messiah would come and that he must suffer and that he would rise in glory. You remember at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God promised victory over the serpent, and he said that the victory over the serpent would come through suffering, that the serpent would strike his heel, but that Jesus would crush his head. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah, the prophet, tells us that there's going to be a suffering servant, and it describes in detail in the Old Testament the suffering that Jesus would experience. But then in Ezekiel 37, we're told that the dry bones will rise again, will come back to life, will be resurrected. Even in the Old Testament, Jesus is there, the suffering servant, first to suffer and then to rise in glory. And it ends in Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 5 with me. Read it with these eyes now. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive what? Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus promised salvation throughout the book. He has come. He has made good on His promises. And so we know We have a living, breathing hope. His name is Jesus, sent by the Father out of his goodness and love. And because of that reality, guys, when we face trials, 
When we face all kinds of circumstances, little ones and big ones, we know that God is using even those circumstances to refine and to grow our faith so we can take joy even in those. And remembering that the Holy Spirit is at work in us in the same way that He was at work in those prophets who delivered that message long ago. The Holy Spirit works in us the same way, sealing the promise of salvation to us. Amen.